0: Privilege or executive privilege or presidential record there. We're listening there. to Midas Tech's breaking news, Trump is going to jail. Absolutely no dispute to immediately get those records back to the hot on the trail. Team, the criminal team investigating the crimes that uh, Donald Trump, Trump, Trump could have jail. committed. And then he, Judge Raymond Deary, is prepared to make these orders forthwith. He understands the urgency based on the potential crimes, and I use potential lightly there, but in my view, the actual crimes that are very easy for the Department of Justice to prove. but to get those documents to the Department of Justice so they can investigate those crimes. Also important in this order, Judge Raymond Deary um, said that there will be a next status conference before him on October 18th, 2022, by 12 p.m. This will be telephonic, and the dial-in information will be provided at a later date. Judge Raymond Deary thus far has been all about transparency. The last uh, hearing... Uh, he uh, made public. Uh, Make sure you mute your phones, even though the court should have muted their phones last time. I think one of the reporters uh, had said that they had uh, overheard people who were listening saying they heard about the hearing on the Midas Touch videos. So please, (laughs) if you are going to listen and they make it public, please mute your phones when they release the dial-in information in the off chance that the court does not mute the uh, phone lines that are not the uh, lawyers. But we will keep you updated here on the Midas Touch podcast with this and what are you
1: more talking developments. About? That's like but a, in a, short, the wheels of justice
0: are turning. Judge Raymond Deary gets it. This is a signal that he understands the severity. He is moving this along quickly. Wait, He's
1: criminal. Orders that Nara listening, sent- to, uh, listening to breaking special master orders. More Trump Marlargo Marlardo, excuse me, docs to be sent to criminal investigation. This is published Five hours ago, it's already got 297K views. Trump, I mean, judging by that
0: description, uh, saying give us our records back. Um, And these
2: documents would appear to be...
1: Keep saying that... Or, um, you know got my cards here. Said
0: evidence of Donald Trump's intent and knowledge that he was okay. violating the law um, because he received these NAR letters. So It's unclear what he's claiming is attorney-client privilege there, but he's still asserting attorney-client privilege over those documents. And here's a good one, document 21, which is 35 pages, each titled, The President's Calls with the Presidential Seal in the upper left corner containing handwritten names, numbers, and notes that primarily appear to be messages, including message from Rudy, more (laughs) blank pages with miscellaneous handwritten notes. And so Donald Trump... Trump is claiming that this is attorney client privilege and wants Judge Raymond Deary to rule on that. And Judge Raymond Deary says he will promptly make a ruling with respect to those documents. Then, with respect to those Exhibit B documents, Judge Raymond Deary says, Department of Justice, take your photographs of it, log it, and then you're agreeable to returning those records to Donald Trump. Great, just you can return the originals to Trump after you take your photographs and (laughs)
2: log it pursuant to. and you're just confused about so, the filter team as well. In to the search warrant that was signed on August 5th by, by a magistrate judge and executed. because there was a potential for my privileges to be found when the search warrant was executed, the Department of Justice utilized the process code as a filter code. Searched. And they search all the same areas that the case team, which is a separate team that's actually investigating the crime, is going to go into. And what the filter team does is they search any documents that could potentially be filtered, and they want to segregate those documents and those documents. So when the case team comes in that's actually investigating the crimes, they don't see documents that could potentially
0: It could have been Rudy Giuliani. They said, let's segregate this so that the case team investigating it doesn't see. So what do will note though, based on what i just said with respect to those things? Only like twenty. ...the which are part of the special master process. Remember, the those videos, the ediscovery discovery vendor would just retain their processing those records. that Donald Trump could have committed and then he, Judge Raymond Deary is prepared to make these orders forthwith. He understands the urgency based on the potential crimes, and I use potential lightly there, but in my view the actual crimes that are very easy for the Department of Justice to prove Um, but to get those documents to the Department of Justice so they can investigate those crimes also important in this order, Judge Raymond Deary said that there will be a next status conference before him on October 18, 2022. By 12 p.m., it will be telephonic, and the dial-in information will be provided at a later date. Judge Raymond Deary thus far has been all about transparency. The last uh, hearing, uh, he
3: uh, made a uh, Make sure you mute your phones, the court should have muted their phones last time. heard people who were listening saying they heard about the hearing on the
2: midas touch
1: videos <laughs>
0: so please if you are going to listen to make it public please mute your sure phones when they release the dial-in information
1: thanks man um So, um, let's go to uh the last words, no, that's two days ago, hot takes religion, ooh, Netflix is a joke. Hey, that sounds pretty cool.
4: I think God is fake news.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: No, not your god. I'm just talking about that other guy. <laughs>
2: Thirty-eight
4: minutes. <To> <laughs> me, listen. When the whole Muslim band thing, we were saying Muslim band, They asked me, are you afraid of Muslim band? I go, I'm not afraid personally of the Muslim band because the honest truth is, I'm really not that religious. Okay, I'm not that religious. Like I was born in Iran, but I'm not really religious. Okay, like I'm not really, I'm not really Muslim. I'm more like Muslim-ish.
3: see it you believe it right you go to a movie you see me on the screen I know him, oh he's good look at that wow oh he
1: speaks the language wow
2: he's fluent in Muslimish wow.
4: but the honest truth is I'm not that religious like if I were really Muslim I would have to fast during Ramadan I don't fast during Ramadan I couldn't drink alcohol I drink alcohol I would have to pray five times a day. I don't pray. I don't pray. The only time I pray is if I'm almost in an accident. (laughs) And then I just go, oh, Jesus.
3: Brother, 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 what kind of sandwich is that? So I was just trying to tell you I quit. I don't wanna do this shit no
2: more.
3: <laughs> take this fucking flying saucer off my head. <laughs> <laughs> so many miracles. You think the carpentry ever came up when he was doing the miracles? Jesus, if you could cure our son's blindness, and we'd love some shelves right here. <laughs> if you want to do the blindness, then the shelves. We need the shelves by Tuesday. <laughs> of course, we love our son to see those shelves. Jesus, of course, was a carpenter. We all know that. You think Jesus was a good carpenter? Because the Bible doesn't really address that. I mean, who knows? Back then, people could have been, good thing that Messiah thing worked out. Yeah, he built a shed for my cousin. What a piece of crap. And the entire time, he's like, I'm the Son of God. Well, right now, you're building a shed.
1: So, <laughs> hop to it, Jesus. <laughs> he did a
2: Jesus joke and he was an electric.
3: <laughs> the
1: best show I'd ever seen <laughs> <knocked my> faith.
3: <laughs> I'm a cashew actually, I'm Catholic and Jewish <laughs> But I'm neither, I don't believe in any of that shit man I love being a Jew, I love, I, I, I fucking, I love being a Jew, I'm proud of it Long lineage, Sigmund Freud, Larry David, I love all that shit just don't wear the hat or read the book. Because <laughs> I don't know if you ever cracked open the Torah, but it's a little bit out of date. It's like, don't eat shrimp. It ain't Joshua's stomach ache. You <laughs> can cut the tip of my dick off, but I can't go to Red Lobster?
2: <laughs> and
3: I don't know the story of Jesus. It's always confused me. I try to chase it and figure it out. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. Okay, so Jesus was a carpenter, right? So he flipped houses and renovated bathrooms and shit. And he also did miracles, which aren't a real thing. So I guess he did magic tricks. So this guy is like Tim, the tool man Taylor meets Chris Angel, right? He's like, do you want some water or? Oh, Pinot greasio. And a bunch of desert drifter illiterates were just like, whoa. Circumcision's a scary word. I looked it up in the dictionary and just said, Aah! From the land We went through it, but only because my son requested it. It is pretty crazy. Obviously, it started as a religious tradition, circumcision, but how they even come up with the idea? There was a bunch of religious leaders, one guy was like, all right, how should we honor?
1: <laughs> All right, no pork. We'll go no pork.
3: <laughs> oh, oh! My wife told me that in the Bible Abraham circumcised himself. Wow. I can't even get into the bank before it closes. <laughs> Abraham did it. Yeah, oh, hey God, I need you to do something for me. Well, sure, you're gone. I need you to circumcise yourself. I think we
2: got a bad connection. Can <laughs> you send me an email? Are you on Facebook? <laughs> God, those challenges in the Bible took a leap in difficulty there. You know?
3: Like, don't eat this apple, build me a boat, cut off part of your penis. Why don't i build you two boats. <laughs> This <laughs> Church, like riding by on his huffy, like, whoa, what's this place? Weird Byzantine temple with green carpeting where everyone has bad breath, and I wear clothes that I hate on one of the mornings of my two days off. Let's do this. People get very suspicious. They're like, what did they say in there? What?
5: that God is the most powerful being in the universe so if you believe God's the most powerful being in the universe why would he need your help (laughs) what is that shit
2: and
5: it's I mean here's the thing I think the act of helping God is sacrilegious if you think you can help God out you don't believe in God so if you really had faith, you would really have faith. I mean, check this out. I haven't been to church in 10 years. Now, that's believing in God. Shit, you go every week because you don't trust God.
2: You sure here yet? I'm trying to get my life I'm trying to get a little
5: religion in my life. Just a little. Because religion's kind of like salt. A sprinkle's good, but too much will fuck up the meal. I mean, I'm basically trying to find God before God finds me. But God never finds you at a good time. You never sit in courtside at a Nick game. Hand job from Helen God shows up. Ah, she goes good dick,
6: don't she? I made her. I made your dick too. Enjoy the game. But it is pointed out to me many times in the South that they're not the same. Because in the South, you know, they'll go, Oh, are you Christian? I'll go, Yeah, I'm Catholic. Oh, well, we're Christian. Oh, okay. I thought we said the same thing, but I guess not. There are differences. The Christians have a direct relationship with Jesus, and they speak of it like that. You know what? Me and my relationship with Jesus, I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. It's a direct, very solid relationship with Jesus. And I thought, wow, really? You guys go straight to Jesus. In a Catholic school, I was given a laundry list of people to contact (laughs) before the nuns said, because otherwise I'm bothering Jesus. You are going to call these people, Kathleen before you bother Jesus. You can start with your guardian angel. He's got nothing to do 24 hours a day except tend to your needs. If he's not available, you can speak to the saint in charge of the activity you're upset about. Every single saint has been assigned an assignment. You can speak to Jesus' mother if you'd like to. You can give Mary a shout, but you are not to bother. Oh,
2: he's
6: something bad i couldn't tell jesus i had to go to confession i had to get in a creepy closet with a guy in the dark and then i had to tell him that he's gonna tell a guy and i wasn't good at confession because my dad for many years was a defense attorney and starting in second grade he would tell us all at the dinner table i want all of you kids to remember if the police capture you or anyone in a position of authority asks you questions your response no matter what, or I do not recall, I need an attorney. I do not recall, I need an attorney. 90% of people are in prison because they can't keep their goddamn mouth shut. Never, ever snitch on yourself. And then I would go to confession in the closet, and the priest would go, Kathleen, is, have you done anything bad? Is there anything you'd like to tell me about? I'm not falling for this. My dad's probably planted him here. I know know what I'm supposed to say. Sorry, Father, but I do not recall,
3: and I need an attorney. (laughs) I'm not a religious guy. I believe in God, I just don't like to bother him. To God, when I got tough questions like why are we here or how are we gonna get rid of this baby? It's never anything, (laughs) boy.
5: time it was cool I just couldn't buy in going that church I see that big old picture of white Jesus I was like nope
2: hmm.
1: catholic
6: like i'm barely like my parents my family i'm catholic because my family's catholic but i don't know a lot of this stuff i know the basics you know when people find out i'm catholic they love asking me questions you know i'm like oh god let it be an easy one
2: (laughs) who's the guy on the
6: cross jesus yes yes holy water, church. Oh, God. It's because we hate vampires. (laughs) You ever notice Latinos were the only ones that named their kids Jesus? (laughs) This is my son, Jesus Rodriguez. He works at Papa John's. Oh. Jesus has come a long way. You never meet a white guy named Jesus. Hi, I'm Jesus Rosenberg. I work at Goldman Sachs. That's insane. Whatever.
4: Whatever you're into, you're into. But I don't know. I'm not into that religious stuff where... Uh... This is why. I actually walked away from my religion. Just for... I had to be honest with myself. One, I didn't like to go... In... I didn't like going to church every week. You know? I just didn't. Part of it was I'm lazy. I don't like getting up on Sunday. And the other part was I already heard all the stories. Okay? Heard it three, four times. The dude hasn't come back yet. You know, we're just sort of mulching over the same shit here. I got it. Right? And then the other aspect was, you know, I actually uh I had to be honest with myself. I felt my religion made sense and everybody else's sounded stupid. <laughs> I did. Look, I'm not talking about the basis of every religion. The basis of every religion makes sense. You know, the Ten Commandments, right? Don't kill anybody. Don't touch my wife. That's my bike. Right? (laughs) That all makes sense. But just the stories of how we got here and where we're going and what happens after we die. Everybody else's religion sounded stupid, you know? Like I live out in Los Angeles. There's a bunch of Scientologists out there. And the first time I heard the story of Scientology, I was like, that is the dumbest shit I have ever heard in my life. Like, your, your guy's name is Ron. Ron. And he wasn't alive thousands of years ago, so you can hide a lot of it in the mystery. This guy was alive like 45, 50 years ago. He had a driver's license security number. There's like footage of him subbing his toe. Motherfucker,
2: right?
4: And I don't know what happened. He was working at Denny's. He got sick of it. He's like, oh, I'll start a religion. Hey, everybody, there's a spaceship coming back. Everybody's
2: getting speakers. This is crews. We're gonna try to make it clear. Right? I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs>
4: shit I ever heard, while simultaneously still kind of believing that a woman we never got fucked, and a baby that walked on water died and came back three days later. Stop!
2: So, that, that made
4: total sense to me.
2: So it just hit
4: me one day, I was just like, well, why, why does that make sense? And that shit doesn't, you know? They got a spaceship in theirs, you know? We, I right? We had the space shuttle. You know, there's sneakers. There's a lot of shit I can relate to in this. Why does that sound so dumb to me? I don't know. You know what it is? Yeah, I think it's because I heard their story when I was an adult. I heard my story when I was like four years old. Right? When I heard my story, there was still some fat fuck coming down the chimney. Give me Christmas toys. If I lost a tooth, there was a fairy
2: it was a Easter Buddy? why wouldn't they be some bearded baby moonwalking across the lake? <laughs>
4: option is so basically just just let go of the shit you know just let go
2: <laughs>
4: just let go of it like like that creepy moment curling you know you know that moment with the shooter or whatever, whatever you call him
2: just you know, slide with that rock right just let me do this right just slide. Hmm. And
4: you think he's longer
2: so oh, forth. man.
1: Well, yeah. they're here. The end times oh, my god end times. Yeah. 38 minutes of... Oh, man. Trump texts to them. Agent message at rioters trial. When most
7: trial. people think about UFOs or UFO sightings, they think about it in terms oh, man. of our time. But what about the past? Just, uh... Were other generations witnessing strange lights in
8: the sky? Strange sights appeared in the but skies in history long the movie. before space or manned flight of any kind was possible. And in each century, these visions took on identities that tell much about the world view of those who saw them. Alexander the Great and his army, for instance, were harassed by a pair of flying objects in 329 B.C. Most of the soldiers fled the sea, but some of the hardier men stood their ground and tried to hit the disk with their arrows and with stones from their slings. In 1492, just four hours before discovering land, Christopher Columbus saw a bright glowing object come out of the sky, go into the water, and travel slowly through the water very close to the ship. is a disc-shaped flying object that experts say may have commemorated a daytime UFO sighting. Oh. The great British astronomer Edmund Halley of Comet fame also saw a series of unexplained aerial...
1: This is called... This just came up. I guess I scored up and um, left that 38 minutes about of, of comedians on the church, on religion great um if you want to if you want to see it you can do a search for that see the end this is called hidden history of the movie and it's by end times productions i wonder if this is something. we in america have been lied to about everything i kid you not your videos are phenomenal. The truth is being uncovered at a rapid pace. so the deception being personal. People keep it coming. It's so cool. Seeing history know, so many cultures. All the same things no matter what tribe, religion or race. Okay. Let's check this out in Time Productions. It's uh... Six, they have 602k subscribers. That's like about as many as Midas Touch.
8: ...objects in March of 1760. Okay. One lit up the sky for more than two hours and was so brilliant that Halley could read a printed text by its light. There were sightings in 1897 of a lighter-than-air ship that had propellers, porthole windows. It's so important. Well, they're here. The end times, kid. End times.
1: Oh. Kitty... Fucking your fucking nails like that, bitch. When me. most
7: people think about UFOs or UFO sightings, they think about it in terms of our time. But what about the past? Were other generations witnessing strange lights in the sky?
8: Strange sights appeared in the skies long before spaceflight or manned flight of any kind was possible. And in each century, These visions took on identities that tell much about the world view of those who saw them. Alexander the Great and his army, for instance, were harassed by a pair of flying objects in 329 B.C. Most of the soldiers fled the sea, but some of the hardier men stood their ground and tried to hit the disc with their arrows and with stones from their slings. In 1492... Just four hours before discovering land, Christopher Columbus saw a bright glowing object come out of the sky, go into the water, and travel slowly through the water very close to the ship that he was on. Engraved onto a French token, minted in the 1860s, is a disc-shaped flying object that experts say may have commemorated a daytime UFO sighting. The great British astronomer Edmund Halley of comet fame, also saw a series of unexplained aerial objects in March of 1716. One of them lit up the sky for more than two hours and was so brilliant that Halley could read a printed text by its light. There were sightings in 1897 of a lighter-than-air ship that had propellers, porthole windows, and brilliant searchlights, which it directed at the ground. In 1917, what may have been the largest crowd ever to witness a UFO occurred in Fatima, Portugal. 50,000 people watched in amazement as a huge silver disc began spinning like a windmill and dancing about in the sky. After plunging toward the earth, it climbed back into the sky and disappeared into the sun. One night during the summer of 1948, Clyde W. Tombaugh, the astronomer who discovered the planet Pluto, was sitting in the back of his home at Las Cruces, New Mexico. He and several witnesses, including other members of his family, watched a strange glowing craft move overhead. All of the witnesses agreed that the object was definitely a solid ship and that it was probably some form of extraterrestrial device. John Keel is a world-renowned expert on UFOs, and has written numerous books and articles on the subject. A self-described agnostic, he made this statement. Thousands of books have been written on the subject of demonology, which is the ancient and scholarly study of monsters and demons. The manifestations and occurrences described in this literature are identical to the UFO phenomenon. Victims of demonic possession suffer from the same medical and emotional symptoms as the UFO contactees. Dr. Jacques Vallée has addressed the United Nations on UFOs and was the model for Lacombe in Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He is the author of eight books on UFOs and has been widely recognized as the premier investigating scientist in the realm of UFO research. In his book, Messengers of Deception, Vallée says an impressive parallel can be made between UFO occupants and the popular conception of demons. And in his book, Confrontations, he writes, the medical examinations to which abductees are said to be subjected, often accompanied by sadistic sexual manipulation, is reminiscent of the medieval tales of encounters with demons. He also made this statement. I believe that when we speak of UFO sightings as instances of space visitations, we are looking at the phenomenon on the wrong level. We are not dealing with successive waves of visitations from space. We are dealing with a control system. And he states, UFOs are the means through which man's concepts are being rearranged. They are engaging in a worldwide enterprise of subliminal seduction. I found this
7: old book that was published in 1970 that has some very intriguing information printed in it. A lot of the stories I'm about to read to you have been lost to history, until now that is. 1893. In Wales, some eight or ten lights were seen at times, gyrating through the sky in astounding fashion, going up and down rapidly, then zigzagging all in perfect formation like a fleet of airships. 1887. If a ball of fire falls into the sea, it can be called a meteor. But what if a ball of flame rises up out of the sea? Such was witnessed by the bug-eyed crew aboard the British steamer, Siberian, on November 12th of that year. The object rose to a height of 50 feet over the water, darted close to the ship, then sped away, out of sight. Ships were a prime source of UFO sightings in the 19th century. One of the most repeated phenomena reported by two dozen ships or more was typified by the following account. May 15, 1879. Commander Pringle of the HMS Vulture of the Persian Gulf put in his log that two incredible objects were pacing his ship, both submerged but glowing brightly. On looking towards the east, he wrote, The appearance was that of a revolving wheel whose spokes were illuminated, and, looking to the west, a similar wheel appeared to be revolving in the opposite direction. 1845. Substantiating the above, the Brig Victoria, on June 18th in the Mediterranean, came upon three luminous bodies that rose silently and mysteriously out of the sea, remaining within sight for some ten minutes in the air in slow maneuvers. 1883 an inexplicable phenomenon witnessed by thousands of people on both the Canadian and American sides as a UFO shaped like a square table hovered above Niagara Falls for one hour. May 15th, 1811. The people of Geneva, Switzerland saw an aerial show never before seen. It was an odd UFO, one that seemed to change shape from a glowing serpent to a horseshoe and to a crescent. August tenth, eighteen 1809 John Staveley of London perhaps witnessed the first authentic appearance of a mothership and his attendant saucers. Although he hardly recognized it as such, I saw many meteors coming around the edge of a black cloud, from which lightning flashed. They were like dazzling specks of light dancing and traipsing through the clouds. November seventeenth, eighteen 1882 At the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England, was observing an aurora display when a greenish blob crossed his field of vision. Some adjustment of his focus resolved the object into a cigar shape that passed above the moon. It appeared to be a definite body, Maunder said flatly. September 7, 1820, during an eclipse of the moon, several astronomers reported the same thing, strange objects moving in stray lines evenly spaced, that crossed the face of the moon slowly and made turns in military precision. August 12, 1883. This is one of the most famous and <laughs> baffling of all the astronomical UFOs observed. Professor Jose Bonilla, director of the Astronomical Observatory at Zacatecas, Mexico, was recording sunspots when suddenly a small luminous body began crossing the disk of the sun. No sooner had he gotten over his first surprise than another such body appeared, then another and another, and more. In the space of two hours, he said, I counted up to 283 bodies crossing the solar disk. These UFO sightings don't just stop in the 1800s. You can trace them all the way back through history. 1551 A.D., red rods were seen above Lisbon, Portugal, floating and flying through the sky. 1387 A.D., in England, a burning revolving wheel was seen also around a barrel of flame. 1254 A.D., in the sky appeared a kind of large ship, elegantly shaped and well-equipped, and of marvelous color.
4: Red and yellow, and green, and brown, and scarlet, and black.
7: 1168 A.D., a globe of fire was seen moving to and fro in the air. 919 A.D., a thing like a burning torch cruised in the sky and glistening balls sailed over Hungary. 1577 A.D. An object like a lance passed across the sky. 98 A.D. In Italy, another burning torch was observed probably quite like the flaming red ball-shaped UFO is seen today. 12 A.D. In old Irish manuscripts, there's one tale very likely based on truth. Ancient Erie, Ireland. An anchor suddenly dropped from the sky and hooked itself into a church steeple. The townspeople then saw a ship in the sky with men aboard. One man climbed down the cable as if to free the anchor, and his motion was like that of a man swimming in water. Some of the watching men wanted to dash up to the steeple and capture the skymen, but the bishop forbade them. The strange being returned to his craft without finishing his job, but they cut the cable and the vessel vanished into the sky. (laughs) Now... There are thousands of more UFO reports that date back to the beginning of time. But what about actual evidence? As reported in the Scientific American in 1851, rock was being blasted apart in a New England community. Among the shattered stone debris was found a metallic vessel broken in two. When placed together they formed a bell-shaped chalice about four and a half inches high and six and a half inches wide, made of zinc impregnated with silver. There are intricate flower designs all over it, inlaid in silver. It came from fifteen feet down in solid rock, reported in eighteen forty-five and still existing. Is a nail of obvious manufacture that was found in a stone block from the Kind Goody Quarry in North Britain. The nail was half embedded in stone. Half until, which is the crumbly matter churned up by the glacial ages. If the nail originally rested in a solid stone, it is millions of years old. Again, in a quarry in eighteen forty four near Tweed, England, workmen discovered gold thread encased eight feet beneath the surface of the stone bed. In eighteen fifty one, another cut-iron nail sixpenny size and only slightly corroded fell out when a man dropped a piece of auriferous quartz. In 1833, they found a coin 30 feet deep in the ground, and it was about the size of a shilling. Despite the long burial, the markings were distinct, representing a warrior or a hunter of Roman appearance. But no Roman coins of that type were ever struck. In 1891, Mrs. Culp of Morrisonville, Illinois, was shoveling coal into her kitchen stove when a large lump broke into. Exposed to her astonished view was an intricate gold chain as finely worked as anything jewelers can make today. In Salzburg, Austria, and now in Museum, a block of coal from the Miocene strata yielded a perfectly machined cube of steel with slightly convex but symmetrical top and bottom side, with a cut groove running precisely all around its middle. Examined by dozens of scientists, technicians, and steel experts, all of them declared it could not be possibly natural and was positively artificial an artifact made by the hands of human or otherwise.
0: Apparently, just recovered, are
9: off-world vehicles not made on this earth. That's a direct quote. The universal story agrees with the record of every major culture of the ancient world in which the astonishingly consistent story is told of gods that descended from heaven and or came through spiral vortices to materialize in bodies of flesh from Rome to Greece and before that to Egypt, Persia, Assyria, Babylonia, Sumer, the earliest records of civilization tell of the era when powerful beings known to the Hebrews as Watchers and in the book of Genesis as the Ha Elohim, the sons of God, mingled themselves with humans, giving birth to part celestial, part terrestrial hybrids known as Nephilim. Um, The Bible says this happened when men began to increase on earth and daughters were born to them, when the sons of God saw the women's beauty. And they took wives from among them to sire their unusual offspring. I believe a record of this is recorded in Genesis 6-4 when it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. This is Dr. Thomas Horn, and you are watching End Times Productions.
1: What's beneath us? The ancient ones. The gods that used to rule the earth.
9: During research for our best-selling book, On the Path of the Immortals, I was given the unprecedented opportunity, really, to sit down with and to film Dr. Don Mose Jr., a third-generation medicine man, who I met with for a large part of a day, and he told me the oldest legends of the Anasazi, which he had been told by his great-grandfather, who likewise had been told by his ancestors, which included stories of the Anasazi turning to sorcery, to sacrifice, cannibalism, after they had lost their way and were driven insane by a reptilian creature which they depict with a halo above his head of all things uh images of that being are by the way included in the petroglyphs that we filmed inside the canyons and i believe that they likely attest to the fallen reptile or reptiles of biblical fame which also misled humanity as i said in the traditional hogan at one of the Navajo schools Dr. Don Mose teaches at. He began drawing in the sand on the floor and reciting the first part of the story of the ancient Anasazi and how it had been repeated to him by his father and grandfather who had also been told by their ancestors and so on, uh, a legend that Dr. Mose alone had undoubtedly repeated hundreds of times before at the Navajo school. Now, since it was obvious to us that this Navajo historian was really indifferent to our camera and our recording plans, and in fact, I could tell he was really uncomfortable with us putting him on film. but Thankfully, he let us proceed nevertheless. But I sat there and listened respectfully as he proceeded for nearly two hours to describe to this white man what's only ever been allowed a few times in history before and that is the legendary stories of creation of giants of a great flood of a reptilian deceiver uh, all from the voice of the nation's top medicine man Um, dr mose even sang to us in the antiquated tongue of what i would call old testament history Uh, paralleled in their earliest antiquity using the Navajo language. Now, not only did Dr. Mose substantiate the age-old and globally recorded story of those who come through portals and the impact that they have had, on biblical and global history past and present not only did he weave navajo indian myths and legends seamlessly with our understanding of the six days of creation um, the arrival of the nephilim and their connection to judgment by a global flood followed by the repopulating of people around the world and then a second incursion of the giants but there were several instances in which And when I pushed Dr. Mose for greater detail, he would go off script, actually delineating from the official Navajo storyline to provide greater consistency between history and the way the Bible itself recorded certain events.
5: This is part of a ritual, a ritual sacrifice.
9: As Mose was following the official storyline, the one that you would get from the Parks Department in the four corners of the U.S. about how the Anasazi uh, didn't disappear, but rather they slowly migrated out of the area and became the modern Pueblo Indians, uh, I expressed doubts to Dr. Mose about that story. And he responded by grinning just a little bit and saying, well, I probably shouldn't tell you this. But, and then he proceeded to tell us the older stories that his grandfather had repeated about these.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome Welcome in. I kind of get my Swedish a little mixed up with my Dutch. My Dutch, German, German. Small guttural. Um, I thought it was kind of an unattractive language, but then I try to learn Chinese. Chinese is really, yeah, it's brutal, especially if you get the wrong, like, person's tone of voice. Like, their news, um, <clears throat> anchors, oh my god, they sound so annoying, and, and, you know, like, It's really jarring on the nerves. Anyway, so we're listening, watching this very interesting hidden history, the movie, um, posted one month ago, and we're about 20 minutes into it.
9: The twin miracle-performing sons
1: End time productions, hidden history, the movie posted one month ago, documentary. Right, just to couple to shout out to KAMP student radio at the University of Everett, Stoner into stones. And Kipiwati, Pasquayaki, Tribal Radio, Tribal Radio, Tribal Radio. On the Red Spirit Chester Show. Uh,
9: One of whose names literally translates Slayer of Alien Gods um, and his twin brother. And uh, together, those two, as I said in the traditional Hogan, at one of the Navajo schools Dr. Don Mose teaches at. He began drawing in the sand on the floor and reciting the first part of the story of the ancient Anasazi and how it had been repeated to him by his father and grandfather, who had also been told by their ancestors and so on, uh, a legend that Dr. Mose alone had undoubtedly repeated hundreds of times before at the Navajo School. Now, since it was obvious to us that this Navajo historian was really indifferent to our camera and our recording plans, and in fact I could tell he was really uncomfortable with us putting him on film, thankfully he let us proceed nevertheless, but I sat there and listened respectfully as he proceeded for nearly two hours to describe to this white man what's only ever been allowed a few times in history before, and that is the legendary stories of creation, of giants, of a great flood, of a reptilian deceiver, uh, all from the voice of the nation's top medicine man. Um, Dr. Mose even sang to us in the antiquated tongue of what I would call Old Testament history, Uh, paralleled in their earliest antiquity using the Navajo language. Now, not only did Dr. Mose substantiate the age-old and globally recorded story of those who come through portals and the impact that they have had, On biblical and global history past and present not only did he weave Navajo Indian myths and legends seamlessly with our understanding of the six days of creation um, the arrival of the Nephilim and their connection to judgment by a global flood followed by the repopulating of people around the world and then a second incursion of the Giants But there were several instances in which, when I pushed Dr. Mose for greater detail, he would go off script, actually delineating from the official Navajo storyline to provide greater consistency between history and the way the Bible itself recorded certain events.
5: This is part of a ritual, No, ritual sacrifice.
9: As Mose was following the official storyline, the one that you would get from the Parks Department in the four corners of the U.S. about how the Anasazi uh, didn't disappear, but rather they slowly migrated out of the area and became the modern Pueblo Indians, uh, I expressed doubts to Dr. Mose about that story. And he responded by grinning just a little bit and saying, well, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but, and then he proceeded to tell us the older stories that his grandfather had repeated about these mysterious people actually disappearing after they came under mind control from a reptile with a halo, this carnivorous creature, um, suspiciously similar to what I later described in the Path of the Immortals book as um, Fiery Seraphim, which comes from the Hebrew. Seref, the Hebrew Old Testament, fiery serpent, uh, which also corresponds with a lot of other testaments around the ancient world, including the Sanskrit sarpa or Sarpine, which means reptile, uh, and so on. Now, another case in point is when I told Dr. Mose what we had learned from the Apache about cannibalistic giants and then God destroying them in a flood. And he looks right into the camera and he says, oh yes. And then he reaches over and he picks up this illustrated book that he had authored that's used in the Navajo Nation schools and libraries. And he opened to show us an artist depiction of a giant that had stood between 30 and 40 feet tall. And then he starts saying there was this time when the earth was infested with such great giants and alien gods that came down and destroyed and ate the people. Uh, Some of them were in human form, others he said were monsters like uh, human-animal hybrids, which I think the Old Testament also uh, describes. And then he followed that story with the famous Navajo legend of the white shell woman who gave birth to two of the most important characters in Navajo mythology, the twin miracle-performing sons, uh, one of whose names literally translates Slayer of Alien Gods um, and his twin brother. And uh, together, those two great warriors killed many of the giants, hybrids and the monsters that were destroying mankind. Um, As Dr. Mose described these ancient tales, I couldn't help but think of David killing Goliath and then later uh, other giants with his mighty men. Um, Then there was a point where Mose paused and he said, you know, when the Christian missionaries first came to America and told our people their stories of the giants and the great flood, He said, we smiled and let them know that we already knew these stories, that they had been told to us long ago by our own ancestors. After a week on the road, um, having covered hundreds of miles of reservations, to walk amidst their multiple ruins, including hogans, temples, kivas, Um, to follow guides and visit with a medicine man, not to mention tracking down and photographing petroglyphs. We were finally on our way to the last site that we were going to visit, one that our Cherokee guide had told us not to miss. We already collected enough pictogram and logogram images from ancient rock engravings throughout the Four Corners area to make our case and to calculate for our purposes a recurring theme. Which um, definitely seem to match the Middle Eastern and Biblical stories of portals, reptilians, fallen angels, giants, and the havoc that those creatures had played on the old world. Um, but this final petroglyph that was important, our guide had said, and one that we could drive right up to. So we decided to make one final excursion, this time into Utah, 50 miles north of. Moab, where one of the largest known collections of petroglyphs is located in the San Juan County. This storyboard that we would visit there was etched in sandstone as early as a thousand years before Christ, and it records um, practically every element contained in the Bible and extra-biblical texts involving spiral vortices and those who come through them including human-animal chimeras, and even giant six-fingered and six-toed footprints in pursuit of much smaller five-fingered and five-toed humans. Even that uh, reptilian that Dr. Don Mose had described uh, to us uh, with its halo was drawn there, just a couple of feet away from the alien-looking bug-eyed creatures. This location is also easier to get to uh, than most of the ones that we trekked to, yet it's as important, if not more so, than any petroglyphs. You could spend days hiking over miles of rough terrain to reach. It's called the Newspaper Rock Petroglyph, and is somewhat decipherable as to which images are older due to the fading and darkness of the earlier depictions which are certainly the most mysterious with their alien looking creatures and suits and what might even be some type of a flying craft. And archaeologists believe the writing on this great wall continued from a thousand years before Christ or earlier up until about AD 1300, the same time that the Anasazi suddenly disappeared. The Anasazi used images and symbols similar to those found globally that connect to a first and second incursion of giants and the mountainous gateways that those creators came through. Now, that being true, if you take only the images that the Anasazi left behind and compare them to similar, in some cases, identical universal symbols found elsewhere around the world where the stories and meanings of the images have been made clear and keeping in mind that these legends materialized globally at approximately the same time when the torah that is genesis through deuteronomy the first five books of the bible was written around bc 1300 this would have been the same time when archaeologists believe the across the world from these Bible lands were drawing giant six-toed footprints on a slab wall in Utah and facing an alien enemy as the name Anasazi implies. When the writings in the Torah are compared with other ancient texts including Enoch, Jubilees, Baruch, uh, Genesis Apocryphon, Philo, Josephus, Jasher, jubilees, and many others, not counting the uh, accounts of the American Indian tribes on this side of the world, it's clear that this is more than a legend. It is history. It's a chronicle told through different people's methods and worldviews involving giants suddenly infesting the entire world and then being wiped out in a flood, then somehow returning in a second incursion. This story was written down globally from Hebrew scrolls to Indian petroglyphs to provide the oldest recorded testament of part human, part angelic creatures who were in turn the offspring of hideous reptilian entities or what the apocryphal book of Enoch calls fallen watchers. In the beginning, the great creator made everything. Then, powerful reptilians came down from heaven through portals, the spiral, uh, halo, and reptilian symbols that we found in the petroglyphs. They came to deceive the world, as Dr. Don Mose told us, and the world fell into darkness. Um, this is also hinted in one of the meanings of the word anasazi, which can literally be translated according to the experts that we discussed this with as an alien enemy. Portals. Portals. Represented in ancient spiral symbolism besides giant six-toed footprints and horned humanoid figures uh, opened at this time. And alien gods or monsters and giants came through them. Some of these giants had six fingers and six toes just as described in the Old Testament. Then the creator destroyed the monsters and giants in a great flood. And yet the giants and reptilian deceivers returned. They turned to sorcery, to cannibalism, and human sacrifice.
5: At least one of them was part of an archaeological dig. It's old. At least one of them is old. I don't know if it was the one I worked on, but I remember something to do with an archaeological dig. That means it's not just old, it's ancient.
7: But what does that mean? It's actually more simple than you might think. What you're about to hear is the very best explanation I've ever heard. It's from my interview with Timothy Alberino.
10: What we have in, in, this, in the Genesis 6 affair are extraterrestrial interlopers who are descending to the earth from some extraterrestrial realm, and they're likely descending to the earth on the summit of Mount Hermon, almost assuredly at the helm of advanced aerospace vehicles. In other words, they're showing up in what we would call UFOs, perhaps even saucers. And there's this misconception that angels have wings and that when they did when they picture these these angelic beings, these watchers descending to the earth, that they're they're flapping their wings and they're landing like storks or something like that, which is which is complete nonsense. The watchers showed up in advanced aerospace vehicles and they had high technology with them. The technology is probably many, many centuries more advanced. It's important to understand that when we talk about the Watchers, what we are referring to is an angelic race of beings. This is a race, and when I say the elder race, I am in fact referencing the angels, those beings. And when we think about those beings, the elder race, we should not be thinking about quote-unquote spiritual beings, ethereal beings with wings who just transport themselves around by magic, basically, or flap their wings, and, you know, are these, again, these, these very ethereal creatures. Rather, we should think about angels. And this is a biblical perspective. This is not a sci-fi perspective. This is a biblical perspective. We should think about angels as extraterrestrial." beings. They are extraterrestrial. The The term extraterrestrial simply means not from the earth. A provenance other than the earth, an origin other than planet earth. Well, that's given. We know that that's the case within the biblical narrative. Because the angels preexisted the earth. The sons of God preexisted the earth. So they're obviously not from the earth they're not earthborn we are earthborn and the nephilim are also earthborn that's part of what the, the what the term means earthborn that's part of what the term in greek for giant means earthborn so we are specifically earthborn our provenance is planet earth angels are not earthborn their provenance is not planet, planet earth they are from elsewhere in the universe They are therefore, by definition, extraterrestrial. Terrestrial Terrestrial meaning Earth. They're extraterrestrial. They're from elsewhere in the cosmos. They're also alien. They're not human. So they also fit the description of alien. These are not anti-biblical terms. These are accurate terms that that correctly define these beings. They're extraterrestrial. And they are alien to the human species, and they are in possession of advanced technology, including advanced aerospace vehicles, i.e., UFOs, what we call UFOs. So they have they are they have knowledge. They have more knowledge of the universe than we do. That means they have more knowledge pertaining to chemistry, pertaining to physics, pertaining to mathematics, pertaining to astronomy. Much more knowledge than we do. And they have derived much more advanced technological implements than we have. Number one, this race, the elder race, has been around a lot longer than us. Mankind was created to be a little lower than the heavenly beings and the angels. So biologically speaking, cognitively and physically, our physiology is lesser than theirs. Their physiology is greater than ours. In other words, Biologically speaking, they are superior to us. Without their technology, just biologically speaking, they are superior to us. They are a superior race. But then, when you throw in their knowledge and their technology, they are also far more technologically advanced than we are. Angels are not traversing the heavens in horse-drawn chariots. Horses don't fly. They're not like Santa Claus flying to the sky, you know, with a sled being pulled by reindeer. Angels are navigating the heavens in advanced aerospace vehicles, in saucers and the other UFOs. Um, But they're not the only ones. So my perspective of the the antediluvian world, the world before the flood, is a little bit different than a, a lot of other people's perspective. I don't imagine this world in which you just have... Mankind becoming very wicked and degenerate, and and uh, committing all kinds Again. of offenses against mm. God, and then God just is That's angry with it. mankind because of his sin and sends a flood. The story is much more intricate than that, and, and and quite frankly, much more interesting. What we have is a scenario in which the Watchers were. The living gods walking among men. And their hybrid offsprings happened to be giants. And these giants were oppressing mankind. And as I said, because they were human hybrid offspring, because they were they were they were human watcher hybrids, they had legal authority through the birthright of Adam. They had legal authority to govern the earth. And because they were giants. It was not difficult for them to overthrow every human potentate. It was the perfect plan, if you think about it, from the watchers. How do we ensure that our human hybrid offspring can take dominion of the earth? Well, that wouldn't be very difficult if they were all giants. A league of giants who would have been looked at as demigods and worshipped. And the watchers would have been worshipped as gods, walking among men. And this was the scenario unfolding in the earth before the flood. And so you had, you had the gods who were manifest. You had their hybrid offering who were giants. They took dominion of the earth. And, and the gods, according to the, to Greek mythology and to the mythologies of many ancient civilizations, the gods... The Greeks say that the gods apportioned among themselves the earth. They apportioned the earth among themselves. They divided it up and they each became the rulers of their own kingdoms. And of course, I believe that the Greek the, the Greek mythology regarding the gods is a reference to the history regarding the Watchers, the true history of the Watchers and, and, their, and their hybrid sons. And so, the Watchers set up a global empire. And, and each of them had their own kingdom, and their kingdoms were governed by their sons. Again, who were human enough to legally govern the earth. They usurped the dominion of mankind. And mankind was oppressed. They were living under the worst dystopia you can imagine. The giants, and according to the Book of Enoch, men were required to feed the giants to to sustain them and so i don't know how many giants there were but they were forcing the human inhabitants of the earth to feed them to sustain them and and probably were bringing sacrifices and worshiping their fathers the watchers and and prostrating before their hybrid sons who were the the kings over these empires, these giants. And eventually, when mankind could no longer sustain, satisfy the appetites of the giants, the giants began to devour mankind, to devour men. And so it became this, this dystopic nightmare on Earth in which not only was mankind working slaving to to provide food and sustenance for the giants they then became the food and it's likely in my mind that the watchers were requiring of mankind human sacrifices that would be brought to their hybrid sons in other words that you know each village or each city would have to produce human beings who would be brought to be consumed to be devoured by the giants and so this is, a, this is a nightmarish scenario unfolding on the earth before the flood. It wasn't just that mankind was really sinful. It was that mankind was being devoured. Mankind was, was going to war with one another and killing and slaughtering each other in, in, these, in these massive wars that were taking place before the flood. And, and every kind of perversion and evil and corruption was rampant on earth, yes, But at the same time, you have the watchers and their giant sons who were devouring mankind and were governing the earth. And so the earth was usurped from the offspring of Adam, from the sons of Adam. And it's very interesting because both in the book of Genesis and also in the Enochian account, there's this phrase, I'm going to get it wrong, so I'll paraphrase it and mankind began to call upon the name of the Lord, or something to that effect. And it's at that point that the decision is made to send the flood. Why? Because you have the regents of the earth, mankind, whose authority, whose dominion was usurped by the hybrid sons of the watchers, beginning to petition heaven. They're petitioning heaven. So, this is like a it's a response, it's a judicial response from from the great judge who's looking down at what's happening on the earth. And In one sense, mankind was just reaping what he sowed. They struck this deal with the watchers, and this is the result. And now they're suffering the consequences of their actions. But God has compassion. He hears the cry of mankind. He is sympathetic to the suffering that's happening on the earth as men are petitioning him for redress against the watchers and their giant offspring and god decides to intervene and a judgment is pronounced from heaven and god dispatches some angels to go and do various things and what the angels do basically is is one of them is charged with uh, inciting the the sons of the watchers, the giants, to war with one another. And that's what happens. The giants go to war with one another. And so you can imagine these hybrid kingdoms ruled by these giants going to war with one another. This is what happened. And I don't think it was you know, big stupid Disney giants with clubs on their shoulders. I think this was a war involving technology. These were kingdoms ruled by the the giant hybrid sons of the Watchers going to battle with one another, very likely with kinetic weapons of war. Another angel is dispatched to seize the Watchers and, and to put them in chains and to force them to watch the destruction of their sons as they go to battle with one another. And so this is the redress from the King of Heaven. He's going to cause the giants to go to war with one another and annihilate each other. This is before the flood. To annihilate each other, and he's going to force their high, he's going to force their fathers, their angelic fathers, to watch the destruction of their beloved sons. And this is what's unfolding on the earth in the, in the pre-flood world. So it's like you know, it's like uh, the Lord of the Rings or something. It's 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 these massive battles happening and and nation against nation, but these nations are governed by hybrid giants, and they. They utterly destroy each other. When we think about technology, high technology, in the antediluvian world, I don't believe that all of civilization was in possession of high technology or of advanced knowledge. In fact, the Book of Enoch gives us hints as to what the situation really was, and and that is that the watchers taught mankind certain things, certain things. They taught them how to make weapons of war and so forth. But they reserved the greater mysteries, the greater secrets for their sons, which is logical. If you want your sons to have supremacy, you're going to imbue them with better knowledge and with better technology so that they can maintain dominance over the rest of the population. And and also their wives. They also taught their wives. So the way that I look at the pre-flood world is rather than saying, well, there was an advanced civilization, the most accurate way to contemplate this situation is that we're dealing with something like a Bronze Age or an Iron Age civilization, generally speaking. But within this civilization was a fraternity of beings who were exceedingly advanced. And the best way to illustrate this I think, is to reference the movie Stargate. Do you remember the original Stargate? I'm going to
1: watch that again.
10: What the situation really was. And, and that is that the Watchers taught mankind certain things. Certain things. They taught them how to make weapons and of war. But they reserved the greater mysteries, the greater secrets for their sons, which is logical. If you want your sons to have supremacy, you're going to imbue them with better knowledge and with better technology so that they can maintain dominance over the rest of the population. And and also their wives. They also taught their wives. So the way that I look at the pre-flood world is rather than saying, well, there was an advanced civilization, the most accurate way to contemplate this situation is that we're dealing with something like a Bronze Age or an Iron Age civilization, generally speaking. But within this civilization, was a fraternity of beings who were exceedingly advanced. And the best way to illustrate this, I think, is to reference the movie Stargate. Do you remember the original Stargate? Not the TV series that I never saw, but the, but the movie, the original Stargate with Kurt Russell, in which they go through this Stargate and they, they go to another planet. And on this planet, wherever it is, there is a Bronze Age civilization. They encounter a Bronze Age civilization that would be very much like the ancient Egyptians. Indeed, in that movie, it was the ancient Egyptians who were brought there. So it was this Bronze Age civilization. But who was ruling over this Bronze Age civilization? A technologically advanced extraterrestrial. And this and this fraternity within. This civilization was in possession of advanced
2: technology, whereas the Bronze Age people had swords and whatever. The, this fraternity, this extraterrestrial fraternity, had these rods that were shooting
10: plasma, and they could fly. Their their pyramid was a, was a, was a ship or whatever. So that's the way that I contemplate. The world. yep. A Bronze or perhaps an Iron Age level civilization, that's the majority of the population. They're, wa- they're worshipping the watchers as gods, and they're prostrating before their giant sons as, be- as the potentates, the kings of the earth, and the-, and the sons and the wives of the watchers and the watchers themselves are operating advanced technology. So the watchers are flying around in saucers, and their sons are in possession of advanced technology, and their wives are in possession of advanced technology. These are gods among men. So when when those kingdoms go to war with each other, It's a kinetic war. It's a war in which technology is being deployed. That's the way that I conceptualize the free plug world. Now, is that the way it was? I don't know, but it doesn't make sense to me that there was a situation in which the masses of mankind were in possession of advanced technology. Why? Because we would find more evidence of that. And so this is the golden age of yore, which is referenced by every primary ancient culture on earth, in different ways, of course, with different terminology. But the premise is the same. This is the time in which the gods lived among men. It's called zep by the Egyptians. The first time when Osiris and Isis and the other gods of the Egyptians dwelt among men. It was a golden age in which the knowledge of the gods was proliferating and the people were benefiting from the direct rule of these, of these advanced extraterrestrial beings. And it was a time in which the hybrid offspring of the gods, because the gods in the Golden Age, one of the things that marks the Golden Age, that is I- iconic of the Golden Age, is the gods copulated with human women and produced the demigods, the hybrid sons of their union, the union of, of the gods with mortal women. And this defines the golden age. And of course, the golden age is viewed through a laudatory prism by every ancient culture on earth and and laudatory meaning in a positive light. The golden age is viewed as this wonderful time, the best time the world has ever seen by every ancient culture save one, the ancient Hebrews. The ancient Hebrews had the inverse of that perspective they viewed the golden age as the worst time for humanity on earth it was a time in which mankind was subjugated to the offspring of the watchers and was literally being devoured by them it was a tyranny the likes of which we have never before seen but we'll see again briefly at the end of the age there are a lot of stories in mythologies that are symbolic of the golden age and the one that is most familiar to us is the story of atlantis Atlantis, in my opinion, is an allegory of the Antediluvian age. Now, I also believe Atlantis was a real city. But primarily it was an allegory. It served as an allegory. Atlantis is a Greek, it's a Greek story. Of course, it was related by Plato. And Atlantis was founded by Poseidon, who's one of the gods, the Olympian gods. Poseidon, the gods. Just like in the Book of Enoch, the gods divided the earth among themselves and they each took a portion. They were allotted a portion. And Poseidon, his portion was the region in which Atlantis was, but but Atlantis wasn't there yet. He built it. He created it. So Poseidon established this island and created this city on the island called Atlantis. So Poseidon is the patron of Atlantis. But what did Poseidon do? He took a human woman as his wife. He copulated with her, she conceived and gave birth to five sets of hybrid twins, who other ancient records intimate that they were giants. And of course, the most famous among them was Atlas. And so Atlas and his five, and his other brothers, his other twin brothers, Ruled over Atlantis, but not just the island of Atlantis, rather the Empire of Atlantis. and so if you if you take the story of Atlantis as an allegory of the golden age in general it's it's a perfect depiction of what all the gods did. and by gods of course, we mean these angelic watchers, these extraterrestrial interlopers he took wives, again, a legal transaction with mankind, the sons of king. And and a lot of the earth into portions among themselves, and established their own kingdoms, and their kingdoms were ruled by who? Their hybrid sons, because the watchers were not authorized to govern the earth. They had to do it by proxy. They had to rule by proxy from behind the thrones of their hybrid sons. So, again, Atlantis is a fitting allegory of the antediluvian age in general, and but, again, I happen to believe it's also a city, an actual city, within this empire, this hybrid empire. Artifacts of the Empire of the Gods, as I call it, referencing the
2: ancient still exist on Earth. And it is possible, it's possible, as fantastical as it sounds, that some
10: of their technological devices, maybe even including Stargates, if stargates aren't that real, maybe even including stargates, can can still be found on the Earth, perhaps deep underground or in very specific places. And furthermore, this is conspiratorial, and this is just my opinion, but I I believe that those kind of artifacts have indeed been found and are basically within the purview
2: of, of the militaries of the world. Rather than being in in the purview of
10: say the Smithsonian or something, those would be military assets. You know, if you find a star gate or some kind of or some kind of advanced technology, that doesn't go to the vault of the Smithsonian, that goes to the to the R and D department of the Pentagon.
3: Brown horse, this is white horse, stand by for Board two dash one. Over. White horse is brown horse. Stand by the cup. Line Sierra,
7: 2 personnel. Line Alpha, patrolling what appears to be the headquarters. Right. Line Nima, 3 0 Tuesday, April 29th, 2003. Roughly two months after U.S. forces invade Iraq, BBC News releases an article that is so strange it seems to go against the manipulation of our now, in order to understand the true significance of this article, we need to take a journey back in time. All the way back to approximately 2,500 years before
1: yeah. the birth of Christ. Just gone to into a place that we now know yeah,
7: is so modern-day Iraq. And it is here that we begin our what's story.
1: Happening? Hmm? What's
8: happening? Mm,
1: nothing.
8: Tales no, of rising. supernatural
7: beings yeah, yeah, can be found so. all over the ancient mm. world. The bible, so the I of it with Eats, the, text. the book of giants, as well as other ancient I it with the text. all speak of an event where fallen angels descended to earth and, and fooled mankind with their knowledge of science, war, and beauty. It is also recorded that these fallen the angels...
8: oil is best more for like frying. When I fry the garlic, because mm-hmm. you can uh, use a higher temperature with the avocado right. <clears throat> Yeah, it's
1: tasty, bro. Broth. coming up for my I I went for one, thanks. Oh you did? Yeah.
7: Or, watchers, as they are called in the ancient texts, manipulated the genetics, the DNA of mankind, creating an actual race of giants, as well as other hideous monsters using animal DNA. Descriptions of these disgusting beasts can be found in the Book of Giants, which, by the way, was part of the Dead Sea Scrolls collection. Parallel to that, other ancient texts speak of the same exact event, except it's from the fallen angels, or the watchers' perspective. An ancient Babylon and Mesopotamia, for example. The Watchers were seen as a good thing that came to help mankind, and they showed people how to do cool things, and they also created a mighty race of giants, men of renown. However, biblical accounts reveal these things to be evil, fallen angels, led by Lucifer himself, who want nothing less than the total destruction of mankind. Quote. According to Mesopotamian myth, there were seven Apkalu before the flood and four afterward. The word Apkalu comes from the Sumerian Ab meaning water, Gal meaning big, and Lu meaning man. They were considered only partly evil, occasionally dangerous, and capable of malicious witchcraft. They were chimeric in appearance, usually depicted as humanoid with wings, or sometimes as hybrid birdman or bizarre. Way back to approximately 2,500 years those kind of artifacts have indeed been found
10: and are basically within the purview of of the militaries of the world. Rather than being in in the purview of, say, the Smithsonian or something, those would be military assets. You know, if you find a Stargate or some kind of or some kind of advanced technology, that doesn't go to the vault of the Smithsonian, that goes to the to the R and D department of the Pentagon.
3: Brown Horse, this is White Horse, stand by for salute report, 2-1, over.
9: White Horse, is Brown Horse, stand by to copy. Line Sierra,
3: two zero personnel. Line Alpha, patrolling what appears to be the headquarters, right. Line Lima 3-8, Sierra.
7: Tuesday, April 29th, 2003, roughly two months after US forces invade Iraq, BBC News releases an article that is so strange it seems to go against the very nature of our reality. Now, in order to understand the true significance of this article, we need to take a journey back in time, all the way back to approximately 2,500 years before the birth of Christ, and to a place that we now know as modern-day Iraq and it is here that we begin our story. Tales of supernatural beings can be found all over the ancient world. The Bible, the Book of Enoch, and the Book of Giants, as well as other ancient Jewish texts, all speak of an event where fallen angels descended to Earth and fooled mankind with their knowledge of science, war, and beauty. It is also recorded that these fallen angels, or Watchers, as they are called in the ancient text, manipulated the genetics, the DNA of mankind, creating an actual race of giants, as well as other hideous monsters using animal DNA. Descriptions of these disgusting beasts can be found in the Book of Giants, which, by the way, was part of the Dead Sea Scrolls collection. Parallel to that, other ancient texts speak of the same exact event, except it's from the Fallen Angels, or the Watchers' perspective. In ancient Babylon and Mesopotamia, for example, the Watchers were seen as a good thing. They came to help mankind, and they showed people how to do cool things. And they also created a mighty race of giants, men of renown. However, biblical accounts reveal these things to be evil, fallen angels, led by Lucifer himself, who want nothing less than the total destruction of mankind. Quote, According to Mesopotamian myth, there were seven Apkalu before the Flood and four afterward. The word Apkalu comes from the Sumerian Ab meaning water, Gal meaning big, and Lu meaning man. They were considered only partly evil, occasionally dangerous, and capable of malicious witchcraft. They were chimeric in appearance, usually depicted as humanoid with wings, or sometimes as hybrid birdman or bizarre (laughs) fishman creatures. The antediluvian Apkalu were divine, just like the Watchers. According to one story from the Babylonian period, the Epic of Era. Era was the god of pestilence and plague, Marduk banished the Apkalu to the Abzu, as a punishment for provoking him to send the flood. Hmm. Supernatural beings linked to a global flood, who are afterward banished to the abyss? Sound familiar? Interestingly, the four Apkalu who appeared after the flood were only partly divine and could mate with humans. Again, like the Watchers, the last of the post-flood Apkalu, Lunana, who was two-thirds Apkalu, matches the status of Gilgamesh, who is described as being two-thirds divine and one third human. On the cylinder seal, Gilgamesh is called Lord of the Upkallu and is elsewhere credited with bringing back great knowledge that existed before the flood. Scholars who have made the connection between the Apkalu and the watchers tend to interpret the way the watchers are portrayed in Jewish literature from Second Temple period like the Book of Enoch at least partly as a Jewish response to the Babylonian captivity. It was believed that the Upkallu though potentially dangerous had preserved secret pre-flood knowledge prized by the pagan wizards of Babylon. To the Jews however Such knowledge was evil, and the Watchers were portrayed accordingly in Enochian texts." So we have one epic story seen through two different lenses. On the one hand, we have the creator of the universe, the God of the Bible telling the story. He is saying, yes, these fallen Watchers are evil, and you need to avoid them at all costs. And on the other hand, we have the account from the Watchers themselves saying, hey, that little guy, referring to God, I wouldn't worry about that little guy
4: that little fella. or oh, that little
7: guy. I wouldn't worry about that little guy. Quote, so he he that there are parallels in the Mesopotamian legends and the biblical accounts of the patriarchs. Enoch is similar to an antediluvian king named Amadoranke, and Noah is variously called Unapistim in Babylon, Zisudara in Sumer, and Atra Hasis in Akkad. But even those accounts are part of a fallen realm military campaign. A supernatural Psyop. For example, the accounts from Mesopotamia portray Gilgamesh as a mighty warrior, a hero, two thirds god and one third man. He has adventures and slays monsters, notably Humbaba, the defender of the faraway cedar forest, who'd been assigned to terrorize humans by the god Enlil who is Enki's brother. In the second temple Jewish account known as the Book of Giants, Gilgamesh was himself one of the gigantic offspring of the Watchers, as was Humbaba, the monster Gilgamesh set out to kill. This is how Gilgamesh was viewed by the Jews between the time of the Babylonian captivity and the birth of Jesus. Basically, he was one of the Nephilim. End quote. One of the Nephilim. In case you don't know what a Nephilim is, it's the unholy offspring between the fallen watchers and a human woman. Yeah. Moving back to Gilgamesh, he was a giant, part supernatural being, part human, otherwise known as a Nephilim. Now, here's where it gets crazy. Scholars actually believe Gilgamesh existed. And not only that, this article from 2003 the BBC News put out says they may have actually found his tomb. Quote, Gilgamesh tomb believed found. Archaeologists in Iraq believe they may have found the lost tomb of King Gilgamesh, the subject of the oldest book in history. The epic of Gilgamesh, written by a Middle Eastern scholar 2,500 years before the birth of Christ, commemorated the life of the ruler of the city of Uruk, from which Iraq gets his name. Now, a German-led expedition has discovered what is thought to be the entire city of Uruk, including where the Euphrates once flowed, the last resting place of its famous king. I don't want to say definitely that it was the grave of King Gilgamesh, but it looks very similar to that described in the epic. Jörg Fossbinder of the Bavarian Department of Historical Monuments in Munich told the BBC World Service's Science in Action program, end quote. So... Let's take a look at this in the big picture and see if anything makes sense. Because as of now, this whole thing still remains a mystery. First off, the Bible says there will be a time when the Nephilim return. Some people believe this is a spiritual return by demonic possession. Others believe it's physically, as in a return of the giants. Fast forward 2,000 years, archaeologists find Gilgamesh's tomb in Iraq, two months after U.S. forces take over the country. Is it possible that when news broke of the discovery of Gilgamesh's tomb, orders were given from the highest possible levels of government and US troops arrived at the site to seal it off? DNA was collected from the skeleton and brought to a top secret underground research lab where tests were conducted. Tests involving cloning technologies and CRISPR-Cas9. Of course, the only thing we can do is speculate. So what do you think about this? Do you think they really found Gilgamesh's tomb in 2003 as this article states? If so, what happened to it, and why is there no mention of the contents? Or maybe what they found was so insignificant that they thought all news coverage should just stop.
6: We are observing everything to the west of that MSR. Can you see the
7: Does the deep state really exist? Mainstream society as a whole will be quick to tell you no. The deep state does not exist, and it is nothing more than a far right conspiracy theory. Well, If it truly is a far-right conspiracy theory then why did a democrat who also happened to be the president of the united states of america not only seemingly confirm the existence of the deep state but also suggests that they are the ones who are in charge of the ufo or uap programs an official ufo sighting report one of thousands compiled over the
10: last few decades this particular report from October 1969 was filled out by Jimmy Carter. He was still governor of Georgia at the time he witnessed a luminant object suspended in a twilight sky. Later, when he assumed the office of president of the United States, his staff attempted to explore the availability of official investigations into alien contact.
9: As this internal government memo illustrates, There are some security secrets outside the jurisdiction of the White House.
7: Outside the jurisdiction of the White House. Hmm. If the President of the United States is the Commander-in-Chief of the entire U.S. military, just who can be outside the jurisdiction of the White House? Seriously. If the Deep State does not exist, then who in the world are they referring to? March 22, 1950. This letter was sent to the director of the FBI. March 22nd, by the way, is 322. 322 is the calling card for the actual Skull and Bones Secret Society. Whether or not they have anything to do with this declassified document, well, your guess is as good as mine. Let's continue. On March 22, 1950, this letter was sent to the director of the FBI by a man named Guy Hattel. The letter reads as follows, an investigator for the Air Force stated that three so-called flying saucers had been recovered in New Mexico. They were described as being circular in shape with raised centers, approximately 50 feet in diameter. Each one was occupied by three bodies of human shape, but only three feet tall. Dressed in a metallic cloth of a very fine texture, Each body was arranged in a manner similar to the blackout suits used by speed flyers and the pilots. According to Mr. Blank, informant, the saucers were found in New Mexico due to the fact that the government has a very high-powered radar setup in that area, and it is believed that that radar interferes with the controlling mechanics of the saucers. No further evaluation was attempted by Blank concerning the above." So there are people in the government who know something about the UAP phenomenon. But what about the private sector? So if the United States government wanted to convince the public that extraterrestrials were visiting mankind, how would they do it? Behind me here, Skinwalker Ranch, is the perfect way for them to do it. What they're doing, in my opinion, is preparing the public for something. Now, either it is fake, and they're preparing the public for some sort of massive deception or psyop, or it's real, and they're preparing the public for something that they know is underground that they will reveal at some point.
3: Leave the area. This area is under video
10: surveillance, and you have been recorded.
7: I'm here at Skinwalker Ranch, and um, I don't know if you've heard about this place before, but it's one of the most mysterious places on planet Earth. So, what is Skinwalker Ranch? And if you haven't actually been following the story, let me just bring you up to speed. The place behind me is one of the most mysterious places known to human beings, otherwise known as the Sherman Ranch. When the Sherman family moved in, they noticed a lot of weird things happening. And to make a long story short, they saw everything from literal werewolves who they shot multiple times and they ran away, monsters... UFOs hundreds of times, little blue balls that float around and seem to be intelligently controlled that ended up actually killing their dogs and incinerating them, Um, little red balls that flew around and terrified their horses. They also had four black Angus bulls that were somehow, without any explanation, taken up from the corral and brought inside of the trailer while the family was sitting right outside. Uh, No noise was made. How are you going to take four 2,000-pound bulls and put them in a trailer. So when they went to the trailer, the bulls were kind of like in a, a daze, in a trance, uh, just kind of sitting in there. And as soon as the family came up, the owners of the, the bulls, they came up, the the bulls woke up out of their trance and started to panic. And the story goes that they actually destroyed the entire trailer. They stampeded and they went crazy. They were finally able to let them out and the bulls were totally traumatized. So they just ran around destroying things for a while and it took them a long time to get the bulls under control. Now, there's so many stories regarding the Sherman Ranch and most of them are actually based on his word alone. But what about the NIDS and the OSAP team? Could they have been faking it? Absolutely, they could have been faking it. This whole entire thing could be a PSYOP. So a lot of people actually believe the Skinwalker Ranch is fake, and all the stories that come out of here are a PSYOP from the government. Now, this would be highly reminiscent of the Paul Benowitz story. And if you're not informed with Paul Benowitz story, basically this is what happened. Paul Benowitz was a physicist who saw UFO sightings and was telling people that, hey, these are aliens from a different world. So what happened was the government actually sent some intelligence agencies, um, namely the Air Force OSI, which is the Air Force's intelligence agency that you know does intelligence stuff for them. What they did was they actually tricked Paul Benowitz into believing that they were UFOs and that there was an alien base under Dulce, New Mexico. Let me just read the description for this story. 1978, Paul Benowitz, an electrical physicist living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, became convinced that strange lights he saw hovering in the night sky were extraterrestrials. He reached out to newspapers, senators, and even the president before anybody responded. Air Force investigators, they listened to his story as did Bill Moore, the author of the first book of the infamous Roswell UFO incident. Unbeknownst to Benowitz, Moore was hired by a group of intelligence agents to keep track on Benowitz while Air Force ran a psychological profile on him. Hmm. They also ran a disinformation campaign on the unsuspecting physicist. So here we have the United States Air Force running a disinformation PSYOP campaign on this one physicist, but to what end? In return, Air Force intelligence would let Moore in on classified UFO material. What follows is a scandalous true tale of disinformation, corruption, and exploitation, all at the hands of the United States intelligence community. So basically, the US intelligence community set their focus on Paul Benowitz and convinced him that there was aliens coming from another planet. Glenn, chances are that's not what happened. So why did they do this? I think it was for them to figure out how easy it would be to convince people of something. Uh, It's a lot easier than you think it is. All you have to do is give them little nuggets here and there and they believe it. So that brings us back to Behind Me here. We're at Skinwalker Ranch and some people say the whole thing is fake. The whole thing is a hoax brought on by the government in order to convince people that aliens or extraterrestrials are visiting Earth. Now, what proof do we have that it's a hoax? We don't have any proof it's a hoax, but do we have any proof that it's real? Absolutely not. All of our proof comes from the Sherman family's testimony. That's the originator. That's where all of this stuff comes from. So is it possible that the United States government worked with the Sherman family to maybe fabricate these stories in an attempt to convince the public of something that's happening here? I think it is possible. And furthermore, I think it's more than possible that if the US government wanted to convince people that there was aliens visiting Earth, they would have to do it in a way like this. They couldn't just come out and say it. There was a report that was made, I think it was in the 70s, that said if the American public found out about UFOs, uh, found out that they are visiting from another planet, it would cause chaos. The report states that society would break down almost immediately, and if society breaks,